0: I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, Um, and we are going to be uh, reading a a number of different passages together this morning, Um, a couple of different passages in Exodus, and then we're going to jump to the New Testament, um, and uh, that's going to be Matthew chapter 6. If you want to turn there, uh, the, the, the verses will be on the screen to help you out. And I don't apologize for this ahead of time, but I want you at least to be aware that we are going to be um, turning to a number of different passages today. Um, A lot of them I'll be putting on the screen, or they'll be at least available there for if you happen to miss something. Um, But we want to kind of get the breadth of what God is saying this morning on this particular commandment. So um, let's go ahead and stand uh, where you are out of respect for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to begin reading at... Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, or verse 15, I should say, and that is our text for this morning. It says, you shall not steal. And then I'd invite you to turn uh, just a couple of chapters over to chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And there it says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, and he shall, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there should be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the, from the best uh, in his own field and in his own vineyard. And then Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 through 21. Here's Jesus speaking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is, or there your heart will be also. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having your word. And Lord, you have certainly. been working on our hearts with a scalpel, Lord, over the past number of weeks as we've walked through uh, these commandments. And this morning, Lord, you desire to do the same thing. You've given these commandments uh, to us so that we can see our sinfulness. Uh, Not necessarily to condemn us, that might come as a result of us seeing our sinfulness and the implications of that. But Lord, to be able to see our sinfulness is a wonderful gift. Because we know that the resolve and the solution is found in you. And so, Lord, this morning, uh, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And, Lord, would would all of our time in the Word this morning uh, push us to be more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ? Allow me to be a faithful messenger this morning to reflect your truth to your people so that they can glorify you. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, many of you know that I have been to the land of Russia for a number uh, of occasions on, for different circumstances. And I remember my, my second trip to Russia. We were going to fly in 14-hour flight into Sheremetyevo in Moscow with the international airport. And we got out of the plane. We're kind of groggy. And we had a layover, it's about a four or five hour layover, and we were to transfer over to um, Sheremetyevo domestic terminal, and you go from this wonderful international terminal where there's, there's kind of all, a little bit more bells and whistles to this very, very domestic terminal where there isn't much going on at all. And I had been warned uh, about going through the domestic travel there um, in, in Moscow, and um, Uh, What I found to to be warned about actually came true because what happens when you go into their domestic terminal, at least this is what happened when I went, is you you go in and and they want to weigh your bags. But they don't just want to weigh your bags. They weigh your luggage, your carry-on, your backpack, and even your jackets. They had us put our jackets on top of the pile, on top of the scale And of course, I anticipated that they were going to try and squeeze us for a little bit more money. We are Americans after all, and we happen to be rich. At least the world thinks so. And uh, so here we were um, with all of our stuff piled. It's actually a funny sight. Just everything just piled on top of the scale. And the guy behind the counter, he shuffles a piece of paper to us, and it says in American dollars, $450. And then he kind of whispers to us, he says, now listen, Um, this is what you'll have to pay if you go over to the cashier. And we looked over to the cashier, and there's this big, long line of people there. He says, but if you give us $400, you won't have to go there. We'll put your bags on, and you can go. And we were kind of stuck. You know, what are we going to do? You know, we're in another land. We're not sure exactly how it all works. So we give him the $400 cash. It was in rubles at that point in time. Um, and uh, we got our stuff and and of course what we saw as we gave the money is he took the money he counted it off he put half of it in his pocket he noted to his friend to come over and gave him half and we went on our merry way and they went on their merry way we understood uh, what life was going to be like there in Russia a completely different mindset in that particular context and that as Americans we were targets to be taken advantage of and friends it's not just in Russia where we find the sinful act of stealing taking place. This violation of this Eighth Command, it's right here in our communities. It's on our doorstep, it's in our homes, and it's in our hearts. In fact, just yesterday, I was reading on the, the Nextdoor app about people that are going on these apps, and they're actually, you know, saying, you know, I, I, I don't have much money for this year, and I, I want, you know, I want to get my kids something for Christmas. So they, they, they kind of get some sob story. They make connections to a way that you can give, and these people have no needs at all. They're just, they're just milking people out of having their heartstrings pulled. And people were just talking about how they gave and found out what it was. Friends, this is happening around us. This is part of our community. But hear this it's not just out there, it's in, on our doorstep, it's in our homes, and it's in our own hearts. We are guilty of this command. And, friends, We need God's help. And as we come to this Eighth Commandment, God is calling his children to say no to stealing by trusting in his providence. So God calls his children to say no to stealing by trusting in his providence. And we're going to tie those things together as we work our way through um, fleshing out this Eighth Commandment. Now, just a quick word of reminder about the organization of these commandments. You have the first four, which are, are vertical in nature, all talking about our relationship with God. Then you have the, the next six, which really are horizontal, um, talk about our relationship with others. But of course, there's that, there's that fifth one, which talks about family. So it's a little bit more of a, of a transitional command, and I like to actually see it as the first four talk about honoring God, uh, the fifth one talking about honoring God family. And then the last five uh, talk about honoring our fellow man. If we think through it in those terms, we begin to understand now what it is that God is desiring for us to see. The sixth commandment, if you remember, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment was you shall not commit adultery. And that brings us then to this eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And I would like to consider this commandment under three headings. Uh, stealing defined, Stealing examined, and stealing confronted. So we're going to begin here just briefly by defining stealing. And um, the question is, what is stealing? Well, it comes, this word comes from the, the, the Hebrew word ganaf, which literally means to carry something away as if by stealth. So stealing is taking what does not belong to you without permission, Or to put it another way, stealing is taking unauthorized possession of what does not belong to you. Now, the fact that God considers stealing to be a problem undermines the idea that societies should be communal in nature where ownership is considered a violation of community standards. That what is yours is actually not yours, but belongs to the community. So here we have, just by virtue of him giving this command, a a support and the legitimacy of owning stuff. So the ideas of communism as well as full-blown socialism are rejected because the Scriptures identify identify property as rightly belonging to individuals and the taking of that property as rightly one's uh, uh, act of stealing. But what about the early church in Acts, someone might say? I mean, weren't they kind of living in this communal way? Isn't this an example of socialism? Isn't this even a move toward uh, communism? No, in fact, the opposite is true. Here's here's what we find is said. It says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so clearly in Acts 2, You have possessions that belong to someone. And the people were willfully actually uh, selling those possessions and belongings and taking the proceeds and willfully giving it to those who were in need. There was no coercion going on. There was no community that says, you have to do this. You can't own this. So this is not communism at all. It's not socialism, but the generosity of people who own their possessions and belongings and were willing to part with them to help their brother and sister in need. Okay, so by implication, God is affirming this legitimacy, and the Eighth Commandment undermines the idea of communism and socialism. But hold on here a second. The Eighth Commandment also regulates the idea of capitalism. There are guardrails around capitalism, because if you have capitalism without guardrails without laws and regulations, then people are going to be satisfying their greed and they're going to take advantage of people. And that's why capitalism must be understood in the framework of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, friends, you know, capitalism would say, and scripture would say, an honest day's work in order to get an honest day's pay. And the pay should be a reasonable amount so that people can actually live off of what they are earning. Now, having said all that, let me just share a little bit of the story with you. You probably have something very, very similar uh, if you're a parent at all. I remember a number of years ago, um, our family went to Walmart in Union City, and we did our shopping in there, and as we were walking out to the car, I could tell that Uh, from the body language of one of my children that something was going on, that something was in their pocket, and they were seeking to disguise it. And so I confronted that child and told them to show me what was in their pocket, and they pulled out a pack of gum. And after a few more questions and a stern lecturing, I found out that they had taken it from the checkout aisle as we had exited the store. Now, at first, when I confronted them, they had a smirk on their face, like, ah, yeah, I got away with this, this is good. But that soon changed when I told them what they were going to do next. We marched back into Walmart, and I had them ask to speak to a manager. Now, they asked the cashier, and the cashier, finally understanding what had happened, tried to play it down. She just wanted to pat the child on the head and take the gum back, and everything would be settled, but that was not going to suffice. Instead, I insisted that my child needed to talk to a manager, and when the manager came and understood what was going on, she gave my child a stern talking to, but in a firm and gentle way. And it's what my child needed because they needed to remember that stealing is an offense. In that case, it was an offense to Walmart. I wanted my child to understand the seriousness of what they had done, that stealing was an offense to God, it's an offense to those they steal from, and it's an offense to the community in which they live. Stealing is taking what does not belong to you without permission. And it is an offense to God. But stealing, friends, comes in many forms. And so now we want to consider what I'm saying, stealing, examine. We're going to just kind of open up the Word of God a little bit. We're not going to be able to be exhausted, but we're going to see the various ways that even the Scripture identifies forms of stealing. And so what we want to do, first of all, is is look in our context. I mean, here we are in Exodus 20. But I want to invite you now to go to Exodus chapter 21. And I want to begin here talking about the first thing that we find as far as stealing in the Bible in in the context. Because this section that we're we're looking at now is what you might call the case law for the Ten Commandments. Things are fleshed out. They're they're worked out in a little bit more detail about what does it mean here if someone steals something, what should be done, etc. And the first thing I want you to notice, the first kind of stealing that's talked about, that's fleshed out, is the stealing of people. Notice Exodus 21 and verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So the, the, the first outworking of this eighth commandment speaks directly to the stealing of another individual. In particular, it says a man, but you can consider it's a woman or a child, any of those. Now, in the context of the Bible, there's different kinds of slavery that we find, not necessarily the kind of slavery that we think about when we think about the history of the United States. There are bond slaves, individuals, who have willingly bound themselves to a master. There are war slaves, those who have been taken captive in war who are now serving um, in various capacities in that nation. Um, I just think of of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were taken as spoils of war and were being treated well, but they they were being used by their skills to serve in various capacities. Often the professionals of another nation were brought in and were used to serve uh, a nation. Then there's also debt slaves. This happens when someone uh, commits a crime or, or, or fails to actually come up with resources that they need in order to make a payment, and they attach themselves to someone as a debt slave until that payment is satisfied. And that payment simply might be they're working off that payment over a, uh, uh, you know, an amount of time. But the kind of slavery we often think about that existed in the new world is often called chattel slavery, where where people are systematically rounded up against their will and forcibly taken from their homeland, often by other people in their homeland, and sold into slavery. That kind of slavery, friends, is outlawed and condemned by the Eighth Commandment. Now, if you remember from our time last week, we looked at Paul's words in To Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. I would encourage you to look at that passage with me because what he does is he's walking now, describing the ungodly, but he's walking through the the second table of the law. So in in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'll actually read at verse 9 it says, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, that's the fifth, for murderers, that's the sixth, for the sexually immoral, uh, men who practice homosexuality, that's the, that's the seventh. And then he uses this word, enslavers. And this is his, might want to say, his response or his description of the Eighth Commandment. And so what we have here then is just an awareness of, of, of what, what was on the heart of God. One of the issues was that we as people should not be stealing other people. In this particular case, these are people that enslave people for particular purposes in order to to, to, to deal with them um, and and to sell them on in some capacity. Dutch theologian Gisbertus Voidus lists four examples of stealing people. He talks about stealing children to enroll them in the monastery. So this is later in the history of the church. So these things were going on still. He talks about stealing children to use them as beggars. And often, this is what happens in the underworld. People are stolen in order to satisfy the the needs of the criminals in the underworld. Stealing young girls, sometimes to marry them. And then, of course, there's what we understand to be slavery, that, that chattel slavery, bondage that people are in. Now, friends, when we think about our modern day world, We might think that things would be better, but friends, there is still slavery going on. In fact, uh, just kind of do some some googling over a while. You'll probably note that in in Africa, there's been an epidemic of the stealing of young children. Uh, These militias will go into a village. They'll kill off the adults. They'll take the young children, and they'll in particular raise these boys to be soldiers to fight for them. And much of the economically struggling Eastern Europe, young women are stolen from countries experiencing economic hardships by people that pose as, uh, as the, the conduit to actually work in other countries where those ladies can go and, and serve as servants in homes where rich people live, and they can live in the homes. It's all this promise of, of money coming back to their home, but when they get to those other countries, their passports are taken away, and often what happens is that they are taken to be sex slaves. Friends, this is happening in our world. In fact, this is happening in our backyard. Sex trafficking happens here in Alameda County. In fact, Bayfair Mall, last I remember talking about it, is one of the locations where they actually prey on people. So be careful uh, what you're doing with your daughters and where you're allowing them to go. So, friends, modern-day slavery usually takes two paths, either down the the section, a trade path, or the labor slave path. And, of course, that's going to be found uh, out in the fields where people are going to be working for just a little bit of money, but they're treated as slaves. They're in bondage to that, that master, as well as uh, on construction sites where they come and they, they serve and they're given meager pay. Friends, it's, it's a terrible situation, but here's one of the ways that... Uh, here, it, immediately in the context, we find God saying, look, there's a problem here. You will not steal people. And if you do, the penalty is death. Secondly, there's stealing property. Again, let's continue now through Exodus chapter 22 and verses 1 through 5. We actually have four different descriptions of some stealing issues that are going on. And In and, and verse 1, we have... Uh, It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox. So there's the stealing of animals then. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies. So here we have burglary taking place. In verse 4, if the the stolen beast is found uh, alive uh, in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, uh, he shall pay double. The idea there is the stealing not just of an animal, but of, of livestock now. And then uh, in, in verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be uh, grazed over uh, or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another field. So here we have the, 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 the allowing of your cattle to, to steal the food that is in your field, to graze off of your field. And again, we're, we're talking here about people who lived in agricultural settings where what's in their field was actually a crop. It was food. It was a resource for them. Now, we can have other words to describe specific ways that property is stolen. Um, there's, there's, all right, burglary is simply breaking into a home or a building to commit theft. Robbery is doing something similar, but, but, but using violence or intimidation. Larceny is taking something without permission and not returning it. Um, hijacking, using force to take goods usually in transit or something, shoplifting, right? just kind of pilfering as you're going along in the illustration I gave. All right. there, there are other things that we could say are, are ways of stealing property, but we get the point here in our context. Let's continue on. Stealing people, stealing property. Third, stealing money. The Bible has a lot actually to say about this because this is a dynamic. It's not just actually the physical stealing of money, but it's also the stealing of money that has not actually been transferred. So this idea of stealing money comes to us in a variety of ways. In Leviticus 6, 2 through 7, what we have here is is a neighbor who is somehow deceiving or defrauding another neighbor by making promises about uh, about some kind of money or some kind of investment, Um, but he's he's all doing it uh, really in a means of deception so that he can benefit off of that neighbor. And then we, we... go to Leviticus 19.13. And here, uh, we have an employer who's oppressing the poor by delaying the payment of wages. It says in verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. The issue here is that typically a landowner is hiring poor people, and they're living hand to mouth. And so if you're holding off their wages, you're putting them in a very difficult scenario. And friends, This actually happens today. And and in the context that we're in, especially under the COVID uh, season, uh, this is one of the struggles for small businesses. It's not just that they they can't open like they need to, but you have larger corporations or businesses that have a principle of, of 90 days to pay off a debt. But the problem is a small business may not have the financial basis to wait the 90 days for someone to pay them for what, for what they had actually purchased, or the services that they had done, and it hurts the small business, and you have the big the big companies then that are not following through, and it all kind of uh, you know trickles down and, and hurts those uh, those small businesses. All right. Not only that, Proverbs uh, chapter eleven verse one: A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. Or, or unequal weights, or an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. So as Christians, regardless of what the world is doing or accepts, we are to be people who treat others with integrity. You may have seen this picture. It's by Norman Rockwell, and it shows a woman buying a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. And the turkey is being weighed on the scale to determine the price. And behind the counter is the jolly butcher, happily, you know, in his, in his apron. And, and it's stretched tightly around his belly. And he's got a pencil behind his ear. And he has a little bit of smirk on his face. And then you have the woman who's respectable looking. And she's perhaps about 60 years old. And like the butcher, she looks really, really pleased. But what you see, if you look closely at the picture, is that the butcher actually has his thumb on the scale pressing down because he wants more money for the turkey. And you have the woman who's actually putting her forefinger on the scale, lifting it up. And neither can see each other. And they're both happy because they both think that they're fooling the other one. And friends, it is a picture of what often happens in our society. People are always trying to manipulate things so that they can benefit financially. Then there's excessive interest. Exodus twenty-two twenty-five 25 says this, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. The bottom line here is that you should not take advantage of those who are at a disadvantage. Just because you can, friends, doesn't mean that it's right for a Christian to do that. I I don't know about you. I'm one of those strange people that likes to watch Antiques Roadshow, um, Pawn Stars, American Pickers. I, I enjoy the historical dynamics that come through some of those shows. And on the show Pawn Stars, I don't know if you've watched it before, um, it's about a pawn shop, and they're all, people are always coming in, they're trying to sell off what they have. Um, I, I really respect how the owner handles things there. I remember one particular um, time a man comes in and he has a silver dollar, and he knows it's, he knows it's somewhat special, and so he's coming in and, and they, they start talking, and, and the, you know, the owner says, "Well, how much do you want for it?" And the guy's like, you know, he comes in and he says, "Well, I, you know 20,000." And, of course, you know, as you're watching, you're thinking, 20000 you know? And they have a little interview before he actually goes in. He says, you know, I'll, I'll take fifteen if that's what he goes down to. I'll be happy with that. Well, the owner looks at it, and he starts laughing. And he says, no, I'm not going to give you 20000 He says, it's worth a lot more than that. And so what he did is he had a, an expert come in and actually look at the coin who valued the coin at $90,000. And they ended up settling, I think, in an exchange about $78. The owner of the pawn store could have just said, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the $20,000. That's fine. Go on your way. But he knew it was worth a lot more. See, this is the kind of thing we're talking about here. There's, there's a matter of integrity that is at stake. He would not take the $20,000, although it might have made him a lot of money in that moment, but it would have hurt his integrity. It would have hurt integrity. His character ultimately would have hurt his business that people know when you go in there that he's going to take you for a ride. And friends, the principle is illustrated for us in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 5 in particular. They're building the walls of the city. People are there all working together. And and they are all different kind of levels of financial ability. And what would happen is, is that the poor were struggling, and so their own people, their own fellow Israelites were offering loans, but they were taking exorbitant interest on those loans. And here's how Nehemiah responds. He says, I took counsel with him myself. In other words, he was not a happy camper at all when he found this out. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. And as the saying goes, friends, never let a crisis go to waste, right? In this case, they saw an opportunity to make some money, but money on the backs of people who really didn't have much at all. And so it's like the, the price gouging that, that happens at gas stations when something significant takes place, when there's a national crisis. I remember Y2K. Some of you don't know what that is. It's way back in history, but it was the turn of the century. And, and gas stations, just before it started to raise their prices because there was a panic and all that kind of stuff. There was all sorts of price gouging that was going on. Thankfully, the government uh, got involved and put a stop to it, and laws were made that you could not do that. But friends, it, it's all evidence of the sinful heart of man who is looking for a way to make money off of people in their crisis. And it's, offense, it's an offense to God. The last one here I want to mention, it just kind of in, in passing here, is gambling. The whole idea of gambling is that someone will win a large amount of money at the expense of everyone else who's lost money. It always hurts us, and it hurts our neighbor. It hurts us if we lose, and it hurts our neighbor if we win. So in gambling, for one person to do well, thousands must lose. So if you end up winning the lottery, understand all that's happened has money has been shuffled from other people who are putting their hopes in winning the lottery, and you're the one that ends up winning it. And there are people that... They, they give lots of money for that one chance to, to get it big. Friends, this is, this is gambling, and it's something that we should not be in favor of. It harms us. It harms people. And we could add to that things like embezzlement, extortion, racketeering, which is obtaining money by illegal means. But if we move to the New Testament, we quickly realize that these these Ten Commandments move from simply being outward, external behaviors, but actually issues of the heart. And that is the truth with stealing also. In fact, if you consider Matthew chapter 19 and verses 16 and following, you'll you'll hear the story of Jesus encountering the rich young man, often known as the rich young ruler. And Jesus walks him through the second table of the law. And the young man is convinced that he's kept these commandments all his life. And so Jesus probes even further. And in verse 21, here's what he says. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that there is a positive side to keeping this particular commandment law, this particular commandment. He goes straight to the heart by compelling this young man to do the positive side of this eighth commandment by selling his possessions and giving his money away to the poor, those who are truly needy. And then he says, you'll have treasure in heaven. See, what he's getting at, he's getting at the heart. He's not just getting at the obedience, well, I haven't done this and I haven't done this. He's taking it further and says, What's going on in your heart? Do you care about people? And are you willing to release your money to care for others? He's, he's taking him further. And of course, what we read is, is in verse 22 when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Friends, the treasure in heaven doesn't come through obedience. To the commandment not to steal, but through the reorienting of the heart of the individual so that they are willing to give. This is why we read uh, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6 that says, Do not lay up for your treasures or yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Those treasures are not financial treasures. Those are the treasures of a heart that is oriented to God. It's doing things out of a heart that recognizes that you're doing this in worship for the Lord. You're laying up treasures in heaven, and this is ultimately what matters, friends. And we get to the apostles, Paul and Peter in particular pick up their pens to write and they, they make reference to the second table of the law. They're not emphasizing simply pure obedience, but a heart that is living out of the, the change that has taken place because of the gospel. So this is all the result of the gospel. This is the result of their conversion. So in Romans thirteen nine, Paul says, for the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he's taking the commandments, just like Jesus did, and he's saying, look, this is all really reflected in a heart attitude that is to love your neighbor. So again, it's not just a matter of doing these things, it's a matter of having the heart behind doing these things. And then when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul tells the church that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he includes thieves and the greedy in that picture, in that list. All right? He says, uh, again, he's working his way through the the second table, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, uh, nor the greedy. But at the end, he says here, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So friends, there is hope for the one who steals. It is the gospel that changes the heart, reorients it to live in community with people with a heart of love, a heart that wants to be faithful to keep the eighth commandment. Now, we could list more examples uh, of various forms of stealing, but, but the, the point is that the Bible consistently forbids stealing and consider stealing a violation of the Eighth Commandment. So having examined stealing in the Bible, uh, I want to kind of start to meddle a little bit and tar- start considering now stealing in our context. What we need to consider is that we can be and often are guilty of stealing in our present context. We're probably not stealing people. We're probably not stealing livestock or allowing cattle to graze in another person's yard. Maybe watch where your dog goes, all right? But the Eighth Commandment is still something that we're called to obey. And as we've just seen, the issue begins in the heart. We see something that looks good to us that we have no business wanting, either because it's forbidden or it belongs to someone else. And we allow our hearts to be ruled by it. And the fruit of that is that we're willing to act out what our heart is desiring. So what kind of stealing are we likely to participate in? Well, first of all, I want to talk about cheating. Cheating. And in particular, we'll begin by talking about cheating in school, especially middle school, high school, and certainly in college. When you cheat in school, You're stealing another person's ideas. But you're also stealing their time, their labor, and their ideas for your own selfish purposes. Now, friends, we have to ask ourselves the question, is getting that A on that quiz or on that paper or on that final exam so important that you're willing to violate the Eighth Commandment? Now, I wonder, is this happening because there's so much pressure on the student from parents? Not just for the student to do their best, but to perform with perfection because they want them to get into the right school. Well, how about work on their character above and beyond their academic excellence? And how about not putting the kind of pressure on them so that they will think that stealing is an option to somehow please their parents and so they're willing to do it. Is, is this happening because of the sin of pride? The person longs to be first. Well, I got the best grade in class. Well, did you get it because you worked hard or did you get it because you cheated? Is it happening because there is a culture of cheating and deceit? And friends, I think this is one of the things that's, that, that is often found in the college situation. Someone somehow is able to, to hack into something. Some account, they get copies of of tests, and they pass them around, and and students know, and they collaborate. There's just a culture of cheating. If we can do it, we're going to do it. Why? Because the end justifies the means. I mean, it's amazing to me that there are people who are willing to write papers for students at college for a fee so that they can pass a class. So you're, you're willing to be paid to cheat or to help someone cheat. Friends, when you give in to cheating in school, you not only violate the Eighth Commandment, but you also rob your teachers and your classmates. And ultimately, you rob yourself of the proper opportunity for learning. Learning is a wonderful and a beautiful thing. Yet in poll after poll, students, many of them in religious institutions, admit on surveys and interviews that they cheat. So cheating, cheating in school. And all the parents are like, yay, Pastor Rod, well done. We paid you to say that. Okay, well, there's also cheating on your taxes. And I don't know that that's your kids necessarily. Now, if you're willing to cheat in school, then it's likely that you're willing to cheat on your taxes. Now, I'm not talking here about honestly making a mistake on your taxes or working with a tax accountant who can show you how you can better prepare your taxes in ways... Uh, where you can take a deduction that maybe you didn't realize you could take—that's all uh, doing your taxes in a right way. That's that's why all those rules and regulations and codes and guidelines are there. Nothing wrong with that. I'm talking about knowingly misrepresenting your income uh, or your expenses so that you don't have to pay the taxes that you owe. Now, some people simply underreport their earnings. Some people overreport their deductions, their expense accounts, their charitable contributions and stuff. Others even fabricate dependents. They'll add their dog as a dependent. Now, I think the IRS has done some things to kind of shore that up. But years ago, there was a lot more of that going on. It's estimated that 1.6 million cheat on their taxes every year. And contemporary statistics show that uh, the percentage of people in America who think that it's morally wrong to cheat on your taxes is shrinking. It was a number of years ago, not too long ago, 88%. At present, uh, the data I got was 79%. My friends, that's, that's a change, it's a drifting away to say, you know, it's okay to rob from the government. Now friends, both cheating in the context of school and cheating on your taxes are issues of the heart. They don't happen with uh, without the heart longing for something so much that it's willing to disregard God's eighth commandment in order to get what they desire. So when you sit down to take your final exam, pray. Pray that you will give your best for the glory of God and that your heart will not give in to sinful temptation. And that if you don't do as well as you I had wanted to, that God is still sovereign to take care of you. When you do your taxes, pray. Yes, that your taxes would be low, but more importantly, that you would not be led astray by the temptation to misrepresent the truth. Do your taxes for the glory of God. So that's cheating. Next one, stealing in the workplace, stealing in the workplace. I'm sure that you could make a long list of ways that people steal at work. I'm talking about other people, of course, right? Um, When employees fill in false time cards, they pilfer the office supplies to use them at home, they pad their expense accounts, they fail to put in a full day's work, they surf the internet, send emails, or, or play computer games when they're supposed to be working. And then we could go on with a long list of other ways that people do that. Then there's stealing that takes place in your business dealing. So I'm thinking here of of a business owner or someone who is actually carrying out business. Again, I'm sure you could make a long list here. But employees are, are guilty of this when they're not paying their employees, so employers are not paying their employees an appropriate wage. Or not treating their employees with respect or Piling on the work expectations, especially for those who are on salary pay. If we can get them to move out of hourly to salary, then we'll pour it on, right? Being heavy-handed and impersonal with the employees. These are just a short list of how businesses can wrongfully interact with their employees here and steal from them. How about with, with vendors? Not paying your bills on time being overly demanding, threatening language on the phone because something didn't come through. These are all examples of this this kind of attitude that ultimately is willing to steal from those vendors or or just clients being pressured into unethical business practices. Now, I've never been a salesman at all in my life, but I wonder what it would be like to try and be a salesman for a company that had a really rotten product. I mean, how do you actually say, yeah, you want to buy this thing, but I wouldn't buy it. What do you do with that? And this is part of the problem. You know, selling defective goods or misrepresenting your product or overcharging or making promises that you don't plan to keep. I came across the story this week of, uh, of a man by the name of Richard Halverson. He was a former chaplain of the U.S. Senate who was meeting with a Christian businessman who owned a number of automobile dealerships all around the Maryland and Virginia area. And the man came to him and he said this. Dr. Halverson, I want to be a witness to Christ. I think that I'm going to buy a number of New Testaments and we're going to hand them out to all of my employees and we're going to hand them to all the people who come and visit my automobile dealerships. But this particular businessman was known in town to be a person who didn't treat his employees well and oftentimes didn't treat his clients well. And Richard Halverson said to him, Brother, you know it might be better, instead of handing out New Testaments, if you treated your employees right and you dealt honestly with those who came to do business with you, that would be a better witness. See, defrauding others in business destroys our witness. We can steal in the workplace. We can cheat. We can also rob God. In Malachi 3.8, the Lord says to the children of Jacob through his prophet, will a man rob God? And he's talking about robbing God by failing, or I say falling woefully short in their tithes and offerings. And I ask you the same question this morning. Are you being faithful in your giving to God through his church? Paul Harvey once told the story of of a lady who, dug a turkey out of her freezer that had been there for 23 years. So she calls up the butterball turkey hotline. I didn't even know there was such a thing, all right? And asks if the turkey is still edible. The man at the hotline thought for a minute and said, well, if the turkey's been at zero degrees for 23 years, then yes, it would be safe and edible, but it would taste like cardboard. Throw it away. And her response was, good, that's what I thought. We'll give it to the church. Now, friends, th- this reveals just kind of a, a heart attitude that many people have, and that is, ah, you know what? We're no longer going to need this. Let's give it to the church. I've been a youth pastor in my life. I mean, couches f- flow in from homes, old pianos that are rickety. Oh, well, we don't know what to do. We thought maybe the church would like it. Let's give the church our leftovers and then have them deal with it and us get offended when they actually get rid of it. See, these are attitudes of the heart, friends. Are we robbing God? Now, you might be ready with your quick response. Wait a second. This is in Malachi, and this is Old Testament, and we're not living the Old Testament tithing paradigm. We're in the New Testament where there's grace giving, not I understand that is true. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to follow Old Testament tithing, you'd actually be giving 23.5% because there were three tithes, two that happened every year, one that happened every three years. That's 23.5%. But here's the point. Even in your grace giving, you have this benchmark in the Old Testament to work from. And I think part of the heart problem is we're always trying to whittle away what's the, the amount that God is requiring me to actually figure out this percentage from. And you're going to, you know, chop off the, you know, the gross to say net and all these other things that are, oh, i got this little, uh, this is what I have left over. I'll give that to the God. I'll give that to the church. And God's saying, no, 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 you're robbing me. God is asking for the first fruits. He's asking to be the priority. And one of the ways we flesh out the priority in our lives is to give him right at the beginning, right up front, what what we decide based on the paradigms of the Old Testament and the kind of grace-giving that God has led us to out of our abundance, out of our prosperity, we give that to him first. It's been my experience that as we maintain that as a priority, that God is sufficient to carry us through. You say, well, I just can't afford to do that. I would suggest to you that if you allow yourself to be fashioned and shaped by God's word, you cannot afford not to do that. And you're missing out on a blessing because you're not being faithful to your giving to the Lord. So although we're not required to give a tenth of the church, uh, to the church, there is this Old Testament benchmark, and friends, I want you to see that, because what we have typically as we've gone through these, <laughs> as we've gone through these uh, commandments, is that we see the, the commandment in the Old Testament, but when we get to the New Testament, we see that the Lord actually wants to drive it further. In other words, in this case, here we have this Old Testament paradigm, and, and, and Jesus is saying, "Well, no, no, actually this, there's more I want you to do." This is a heart attitude, friends. God is after a heart of generosity that bears fruit in faithful giving, faithful to give, or giving less than you know you're able is a violation of the eighth commandment, and it's ultimately a heart issue. Number four, piracy, or and plagiarism. Now, piracy is the stealing of any form of digital media, music, video, computer programs, etc. Of course, plagiarism is, is stealing someone else's ideas as if they're your own and not giving credit for them. I remember uh, my first trip to Costa Rica. I was visiting uh, Steve Henning, who was a missionary there. And um, we were having a good time together. And he lives out up in the mountains, up by a volcano. And uh, there, there isn't much out there. And um, he suggested, hey, why don't we go rent a movie? we thought, all right, good idea. We can do that. We can go rent a movie. So I went with him, went to the the video store, store, only to find out that none of the videos that were being rented were actually originals. They were all bootleg copies. And so it just kind of, it was my first experience in seeing all that. But that was the norm. That's just what they had there, right? When I went to Russia for the first time, one of the things that I was impacted with was I could go into a store in Russia, impact a, a computer store, a computer program store, and I could see all these different kinds of programs, all these different kind of maybe video games too, but there was Microsoft Office, there was PageMaker, there was Microsoft Publisher, um, and uh, Photoshop, and, uh, most of these are, are really expensive programs, at least in the day. They were at least over $400. But I could get them there for $10 a piece. Why? Because they've been stolen. Apparently, the laws in the United States don't carry over to Russia. And if you got one there, it would have Russia language, but you could convert it over to English. At least that's what they told me. But it's just like, wow, this is happening, friends. It's not just happening out there. This happens here, too. So when you you download music or you download a video that is not something that you purchase, you're stealing the property and the rights and the, the benefits of that digital media. And, friends, this is commonplace. And sometimes we just look the other way. But, friends, it violates the Eighth Commandment. I have a couple more. I'm not going to spend too much time on them. Borrowing, in quotes. Now, I'm not talking about the reciprocating saw that I have in my garage that belongs to my brother-in-law that I have every intent to return to him as soon as I can connect the dots and actually get it to him. I'm talking about this activity of borrowing that really has behind it a long-term approach that maybe the person's going to forget about it and it can be mine. We say we're going to borrow something, but we end up never actually giving it back. So what do you have in your garage, your closet, maybe your bank account that you have borrowed and not returned because you really have no intention of returning it? Is the Holy Spirit kind of pinging you right now to say, wait a second. You said that you would borrow that money from that person, but have you actually returned it? Here's another one. The last. This is more commonplace, and I think I think it's evident of the kind of culture that we're living in, the mentality that's in the culture that we're living in, and it's looting. I mean, this year we've seen it, haven't we? As if all of a sudden, because there is a protest, huh? I can run into a store. I can smash a window and run into a store, and I can grab a bunch of shoes and a bunch of clothes, and I can feel justified because I deserve this. I'm oppressed. This is my right. Friends, it's stealing. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And people that were looting on Saturday, I would think that many of them were showing up in church on Sunday. Feeling justified because their enemy are the people who have the resources. Friends, this this comes from an entitled culture. And friends, we can be swept up with the mentality. It's not so much the looting, but it's the mentality that concerns me. That it's my right, and I should have the freedom to grab what I want. Now, we've looked at stealing defined and examined, but I would like to draw your attention now as we, as we shift gears to think about stealing confronted. There are many reasons why we are tempted to violate the Eighth Commandment and steal. We can simply be selfish and greedy. We can find ourselves in a moment of temptation and give in. We might be in great need and justify our actions because of our needy situation, and you may actually be in a very needy situation. But for the next few minutes, I would like to suggest to you ways that we can overcome our bent towards stealing from others. Some of them I've mentioned, but we need to see them kind of resurfaced in our context this morning. Here's the first one. Trusting in God's providence. I said at the beginning that God calls his children to say no to stealing by trusting in his providence. The reason that you are stealing is because you're not trusting in his providence. You're saying, I want this now. This is going to meet my need. And God is saying, I've already got your need taken care of. To trust in his providence means that we rest in the fact that God is working out his will in our lives in a way that he ordains it. It means that we supply, or he will supply what is needed to give sustenance and support as is needed, and that he will provide for us because he knows our needs better than we do. He promises to provide for our needs physically, emotionally, spiritually. He promises to guide our paths, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. This is a this is resting in God's providence over our lives, and that's what we sang this morning. Whatever my God ordains is right; His holy will abideth. I will be still. Whatever He does, and follow where He guideth. He is my God through dark uh, though dark my road, He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all, and so to him I leave it all. Do you believe that God is fully and completely in control and guiding your life? Friends, that is the place where we must begin. Without embracing God's providence, we'll have difficulty keeping the Eighth Commandment. So God knows, he cares, and he is working out his plan in your life, and you can trust him. Secondly, not only trusting in God's providence, but also embracing the ethic of hard work. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 gives counsel to those whose lives have been bound up with stealing in their past life. So he speaks about putting off the old self, by being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then putting on the new self. That's Ephesians 4, what, 21, 22, and 23, or 22, 23, and 24, I think it is. And then in verse 28, he zeroes in on the thief, and notice what he says. Here's what he says. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. The thief has been used to just taking with his hands. Not laboring with his hands, but taking what other people have labored with their hands. And so he's saying the antidote to that is actually value hard work. Value what it means to put in a good, day, good day's work. And then secondly, value honest work with your hands. You're used to stealing with your hands. Now create with your hands. See the beauty of that creation. See the fruit of that creation. Value it. And then once you've done that, sell what you've created. And with that money, share it with those who are in need. <laughs> it's very wise counsel, isn't it? Value what it means to work hard. Value what it means to actually work with your hands. And value what it means to use the the proceeds of that to help others who are in need. A lot of things have changed in the heart of the thief. He values the image of God in man, so he's no longer willing to take advantage of another. He values what hard work produces. A thief steals what others produce have produced through hard work. Friends, it's a change in your heart about God and the ethics of work that will move you from being a thief to becoming a faithful follower of Christ. Trusting in God's providence, hard work. Third, being a faithful steward. Now, of course, this is connected to the work ethic and God's providence, isn't it? when we realize that all that I have is God's and that I'm accountable to him for what I do with what he's given me, then my attitude towards stealing will change. In fact, I will begin to think more about the needs of others than my own personal needs and wants. So a faithful steward will uh, will result in actually... Uh, having a generous spirit that would be willing to come to the aid of others who are in need. So when there's an opportunity to help, the faithful steward says, aha, here's an opportunity where these resources, out of my resources, I can help someone else. When there's a collection of money being taken to provide for a family's needs, that, that person is saying, I can honor the Lord and I can love my fellow man by using the resources that God has given me as a faithful steward, I am, as a result, having a generous spirit. This is what God calls us to do. When we are stealing, we don't have a generous spirit. Why? Because it's all about what we can get. But when we're stewards, it's all about what God has given and how we can actually use that to help others. Of course, that doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. You do. faithful steward does that, but they know also how to be generous, because they know it all belongs to God. Trusting God's providence, hard work, being a faithful steward. Next one, definitive restitution. say, what in the world are you talking about there, Pastor Rod? Well, in the passage that we read in Exodus chapter 22, here's what we found. We found that there was this need... If you had stolen something in verses 1 and 2, to make restitution wasn't just to give back the ox or to give back the sheep. It was actually to give back the ox. If you stole an ox, you were to give five back. If you were to steal a sheep, you were to give four back. A little bit later on in chapter 22 in verse 4, you stole an animal and and you were caught, you were required to pay double in restitution. Restitution means not just giving back what you stolen, but going above and beyond in restitution to make sure that everything is restored, to make sure that that person and your relationship with that person has been righted. So you go above and beyond. Exodus 22, verses 5 through 6, uh, a man's... A beast has wandered into a neighbor's vineyard and grazed his crops. So you're required to make restitution from the best of your fields. So you get the principle here. If you've stolen something from someone and you want to get it right, don't just return the item. Go to them. Confess your sin. Return the item along with a healthy gift card or something like that. Because you, you want to make sure that you are writing everything. You want to make sure that your confession, your repentance, and your restitution are expressed in such a way as to make definite that both the wrong you have committed and the relationship have been restored, definitive restitution. And of course, we find that model for us in um, Luke chapter 19 when Jesus interacts with, with Zacchaeus. But the end result is when Zacchaeus listened to the Lord Jesus Christ and he, he, he basically bowed the knee. It says he returned uh, his, for his financial wrongs fourfold. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that those people that he had defrauded understood the change that had taken place in his life. Now, I'm not putting a number here on four. I, the principle remains that, that from the Old Testament, we see it, even in, here in the, in the New Testament, although it's still to the Old Testament era, um, you have this principle of restitution, this going above and beyond when you have wronged someone as a result of stealing from them. All right? The last one is this: trusting God's providence, hard work, a faithful, being a faithful steward, definitive restitution, and then having a heavenly perspective. Here we go back to the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Here's what Peter says to his suffering readers. He says in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, can you imagine turning on the TV this afternoon, in particular to PBS, and hearing financial advisor Susie Orman talk about an investment that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? Now you won't. You won't hear that. Because man cannot produce that kind of investment. So hear what Peter is saying. He says to the suffering believers, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, this is the outworking of the gospel. We're so caught up with the finances in the here and now and the, the stuff of the here and now. And there's, a, there's an element that we, yeah, we certainly have to have stuff. and We have finances that we have to deal with. But he's saying here, our longing, our joy should be for this inheritance. And you have the certainty and the confidence of it. So why do you feel like you have to steal and take from others to satisfy your own sinful flesh when you have so much that God has given you? And Peter is only uh, reinforcing what Jesus had said in his earthly ministry, and we've already looked at that, and that is Matthew six nineteen and twenty. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where m-. So when your treasure is, is in heaven, you can be sure that there are no moths there to destroy it. A, a stock market crash won't affect it. A pandemic will not cause it to suffer. Your portfolio will only grow because it's an investment that is secure beyond imagination. And friends, this is all an outflow of the gospel. Yes, Jesus died to save you from your sins, and we celebrate that, but he delivered you so that you could live. And that new life in Christ has heaven as its permanent home, and it's a home that he is preparing for us. It is what we long for. So, friends, stealing is confronted. Trusting in God's providence, are you doing that? Do you value hard work? Or are you kind of like just doing whatever you can just to get by and make a buck? Are you a faithful steward? Are you willing to exercise definitive restitution, going above and beyond to make sure that relationships are restored? Do you have a true, healthy, and heavenly perspective? As we bring it to a close, to me it's amazing that Jesus hung on the cross with one thief on one side and one thief on another. And that one of the last things that he would say before he died is truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now think about those words. And think about to whom Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to a man who was such a thief that the authorities determined that his... Punishment would be crucifixion. So this was a man who lived a life of thievery. And yet on the cross, hearing from Jesus, asking a question, captivated by who was beside him. Of the other thief mocked. This thief believed. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, friends, this is important for us. Because the truth is that we all are thieves. We're all guilty of stealing, violating the Eighth Commandment. We're all undeserving. But we've all been given life through the Gospel. And even a thief, who's been a thief all of his life, can bow the knee to the King and Creator of the universe and be brought into the Kingdom of God. And it's only because of Jesus Christ. And it's only because of what he has done for us on the cross. Friends, we are all blessed in our thievery beyond imagination because Christ has given us life anew in spite of our sinful bent towards stealing. That should comfort us. That should encourage us. And now he calls us to live our lives in such a way where thieving and stealing is not part of who we are, but living our lives for his glory and trusting in his providence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just feel like this morning, although we've covered a lot of territory, that there's so much more that scripture says on this subject. But Lord, as we have listened to the words of Jesus, as we've considered not only how this idea of stealing is fleshed out in the Old Testament and moves its way into the New Testament, that what you are really after is a heart that is properly oriented to you that is resting on your providential care. So, Lord, when we are able to do that, Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that clearly reflects you are God who provides. You are God who, uh, who takes care of us. You are God who knows our struggles and, our, and, and the things that, that are before us. He, he knows even the hair on our head. Lord, help us to be mindful of how wonderful and how great you are and how beautiful this gospel is. That, yes, we are moved from death to life, but we are also given instructions for living that life, Lord, in such a way that not only glorifies you, but is a help to us. Help us, Lord, to disentangle ourselves, the thinking of the world around us, and embrace what we know to be true. And Lord, to live our lives in a way that would honor you because of it. We ask this now, precious, holy name. Amen.